0: Welcome to Merricks Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China.
1: Welcome to the Merricks podcast. Today we will talk about the economic policies of the Chinese government. I am Claudia Wessling, Director of Communications and Publications at Mercator Institute for China Studies And I'm honored to welcome Isabella Weber and my colleague Jacob Gunter to the show. Hi, Isabella. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Claudia. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for arranging this.
1: This podcast is part of a small series we're currently doing at Merrick's on China's changing economic model. We have invited experts from all over the world to discuss uh, the concepts of the Communist Party and also try to shed light on the meaning of some of the slogans uh, Xi Jinping has been promoting in recent months. Um, One of those being the term common prosperity, a promise of spreading wealth more equally over the whole of Chinese society. Before we dive right into the subject, Let me briefly introduce our guests today. Um, Isabella Weber is a research associate and research leader in China studies at the Political Economy Research Institute at University of Massachusetts. In her work, Isabella combines economic theory, economic history and China studies to examine the interaction between economic thinking, policy, and long-term structural patterns in periods of deep social transformations. And last but not least, Jacob Gunter is a senior analyst at Merix. He has lived and worked in China for 10 years, including as a senior policy and communications manager at the European Union's Chamber of Commerce, Jacob covers, among other topics, China's political economy, industrial policy, and he examines how the EU can better compete with China. Isabella, China's economy is facing challenges on several levels. November economic figures show sluggish consumer demand, the industry trending sideways, and the property sector still at the brink of collapse. Um, China's leadership has to deal with the risk of an even steeper downturn in 2022, some experts say. um, How do ambitious concepts for China's political economy, like common prosperity, fit into this very difficult context? Yeah, thank you. Great question. So I think we have to keep in mind that 2021,
2: in some sense, by design, is a year of big changes, since of course it is the 100th anniversary of the Um, Communist Party, it's also the year in which um, the first centenary goal was meant to be achieved and has been declared to be achieved, which dates back to the late 90s, in fact, to Jiang Zemin, so one of the um, leaders whom we consider most pro-market, but who nevertheless coined these two big centenary goals, which means that after the achievement of this first goal, which was to build a moderately prosperous um, society in all respects, the second goal is now um, the main long-term item on the policy agenda, which reads, build a modern socialist country that is prosperous, strong, democratic, culturally advanced, and harmonious, to use the actual wow. um, language of that goal. So in some sense, we have this um, this switch to such an enormously ambitious um, goal that requires a whole broadening of the policy agenda happening at the same time as the massive global economic challenges the pandemic and so on and I think that we have to take these two um, moments together this long-term policy agenda that really is is part of party history in many ways and the massive um, structural changes that the global economy and China um, is facing right now. Now more specifically from a perspective of macroeconomics I think it's pretty interesting that um, China has been acting in some sense counter-cyclically in relation to the stimulus responses of other governments. So we have seen in particular the US um, jumping right in with massive stimulus packages in 2020, where most observers were surprised to see that China is very reluctant in issuing um, uh, stimulating macroeconomic policies. Now, at the annual economic central conference, it was just concluded last week, we see that China seems to be shifting towards more of a fiscal stimulus type of agenda, which they see as responding to the three great challenges: that is, sluggish demand, supply shocks, and unstable expectations. So that in some sense, China is now moving in with probably pretty large scale counter um, cyclical monetary and fiscal policy at a time when the new wave of Omicron hits, when the fear of stagflation in the West is becoming, I mean, globally, but in, in the US specifically, is becoming very acute. The Fed is announcing that they will actually have a, a monetary policy that would involve raising rates. China is doing the exact opposite. In some sense, I think China has, in the first phase, benefited from the massive expansion of spending um, abroad. They kind of took that that wind that came out of these massive, I mean, historic stimulus packages from abroad. And as those packages are kind of petering out, they are now pushing with their own kind of stimulus package. So overall, I mean, clearly there are massive um, challenges facing the Chinese economy and the global economy, as a matter of fact. But I think that in terms of the timing, they played it pretty smartly, to be honest.
1: Jacob, what would be your take on on these recent developments? Isabella just mentioned the uh, Central Economic Conference that concluded last week in in Beijing and where stimulus measures were discussed. How would you assess the situation?
0: The the Central Economic Work Conference, I mean, at least the the readouts and the, the information that we have available to ourselves, uh, they they certainly suggest what what Isabella just said. I think what'll be really interesting though moving forward is how some of the trends that we've seen in the last year or so change or don't change uh, moving into twenty twenty one. Um, And moving kind of beyond the the macro perspective, you know, yes, there will definitely be more stimulus, but the intense calls for sort of stability, more broadly speaking, in the lead up to the 20th Party Congress uh, are are clearly the priority there. There can't be a real economic downturn um, in terms of growth and development. But I would anticipate that a lot of the uh, sort of the regulatory um, and political crackdowns that we saw in 2021, we might see some of those sort of back off a little bit, again, for the sake of sort of promoting stability, there might be some kind of populist measures under common prosperity to kind of build up a bit more kind of popularity of Xi Jinping sort of taking care of the common man. But yeah, otherwise, I think the the number one goal will be kind of keeping the waters for the next 12 months as kind of stationary as possible. Though I will note that, um, you know, if, I, if I'm a Chinese official and I read that, um, that readout from the Central Economic Work Conference, I'm not really sure exactly what I'm supposed to prioritize other than stability, because it said we will maintain stability. But we will also deleverage and decarbonize and achieve common prosperity and, or rather, advance it. Uh, we will manage capital um, in a way that still allows profit seeking, but also mitigates risks. And um, we will also boost consumption. And we will also, we will also, we will also. <laughs> so I, I would anticipate there will be kind of a schizophrenic approach to, to implementing these ideas, at least for the first few months until. There's a really clear direction coming from uh, the central government about what beyond stability should be prioritized.
1: Yeah, I mean it's an interesting combination to, uh, of a really very determined pragmatism combined with ideological goals that that sometimes have nothing to do with those pragmatic needs they need to fulfill. Um, um, so, so where does common prosperity come in? Is is this? a sign that uh, at the end of the day, Xi Jinping still wants to shift back to to a more ideologically driven development of China's economy? I think that
2: this shift towards common prosperity really has to be seen in the context of these long-term big slogans, since it seems to be part of a new big slogan, right? Um, Which which evolves around the idea of a new development um, model where common prosperity seems to emerge as one of the key elements. Now, if we go back to the late 70s and early 80s, um, and the, the shift away um, from the ideas of late Maoism, the emphasis on continuous revolution and all of that, um, but also the shift away from a planning-based, big push development strategy under Hua towards, um towards market reforms, then, In terms of the big ideological motivation, this was marked by a new discourse that emphasized that there was a need to basically backstep from two ambitious socialist policies that had been pursued at a stage of historical development where China was not ready to achieve such high forms of socialist organization. So as such, this was actually a return to a more orthodox kind of historical materialism where Mao had tried to in some sense turn marks on its head by trying to revolutionize the social relations of production first and then hope that the economic development will follow from that they said like okay basically we have to go back to this more orthodox notion we first have to develop the economy and then later on we can pursue higher forms of what they were thinking of as socialism. Now this was all um, discussed under the label of primary stage of socialism which then in 1987 still under Zhao Ziyang, becomes official ideology. Now this of course involved the idea that you had to develop economically first and that in this primary stage of socialism, it's some sort of an anything-goes approach to economic policy making, where whatever you are doing, as long as it serves economic growth, as long as it serves growing the size of the cake, it is by definition socialist, since it will enhance your position in the stages of history. So this is, I mean, the broad ideological outlook, which I think is important to take into consideration to understand the history of what is happening now. Now, This anything goes paradigm left open the possibility of a full embrace of capitalism, since capitalist economic policies were part of the tool set of socialism in this broad outlook, right? So throughout the 90s we then get this shift towards more and more neoliberal kind of policies, um, all the way to the early 2000s. But as I said earlier, already under Jiang Zemin, there is a commitment that after 2021, there will be a shift back towards a more explicitly and directly socialist agenda in the here now. But if we want to understand what the logic behind this kind of broad shift in economic governance is, this is the key context um, where basically we are now seeing the attempt to move beyond the primary stage of socialism towards um, laying the foundations for a more comprehensive kind of new economic model. What exactly this looks like, I think, is very open. Whether we want to consider this socialist, capitalist, <laughs> authoritarian, whatever, I think is in some sense remains to be seen because we don't even know yet what exactly it will entail. But it is clear that we are at the verge of a pretty big shift that is part of, of very long-term developments.
1: And that shift from the Chinese point of view is just part of a determined historical course they are on in, in a way, if I understand that correctly, something um, Marxists probably have in their ideological books, <laughs> um, that this is just a development that um, has to happen. Uh, Interesting thought that capitalism is uh, just a tool to achieve um, the perfect state, so to say. But let me maybe try to break it down a little bit to real life in China. And um, I I would uh, ask Jacob to come in first. Maybe what what does this this uh, ambitious goal of achieving common prosperity or whatever mean for China's mixed economic model, Jacob, Um, will private firms, for instance, who are very strong in China's economy start to behave more like state-owned companies in order to kind of uh, go in line with the goals the communist party sets for everyone? And what, what will this do to the, to the economy?
0: People often forget, uh, you know, when, when they hear the term common prosperity coming out of Xi Jinping's mouth, this sounds like something new. Um, and I fully agree with Isabella that it's not. And literally, when you go back to the quite famous uh, Deng Xiaoping quote of, let some get rich first, people often forget what happens next. And literally, that's where the term common prosperity comes, is at the end of that quote, which is, let some get rich first, da 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 da, da and steadily advance towards common prosperity. Yeah, now that we're seeing that that kind of return to to the, the the second half of the Deng Xiaoping quote, you know, I think not only is, is is business and economic behavior becoming a lot more ideological, but in many ways it's it's about aligning companies towards broader economic and even geopolitical um, strategic interests and goals uh, that um, the the party and the state have set forward. Um, so, you know, will will private companies start to uh, almost behave more a little bit more like state-owned enterprises in terms of filling these like economic and social roles. Um, I think that they will certainly see increased pressure towards that because when you look at things more broadly speaking, we're already starting to see private actors being rewarded and protected for aligning with national strategic goals and kind of punished for not. Like the big tech crackdown that happens um, over the last 12, 18 months, it really hit the internet and platform industry hard. But not a company like Huawei, which has a fair amount of overlap with uh, with the companies that were were hit. So we should ask the question: Why was why was there that discrepancy? And it's pretty simple. Huawei was serving national interests with a lot of semiconductor development, the development of the Harmony operating system as an alternative to Android and Microsoft and Apple. And it's notable that you have Ali, companies like Alibaba and Baidu. That in the years leading up to the crackdown, they were starting to design their own um, microchips for various purposes, but they weren't investing in any other part of the uh, supply chain and value chain. Um, They were just on the design stage and they were quite happy to outsource um, their production to, to South Korea or Taiwan. But now we see um, after the crackdown really, really reached its peak, you know, Alibaba is leading a consortium to bail out Tsinghua Unigroup, which is promising, but really debt laden and aspiring chipmaker. Baidu has started investing a great deal more in a more holistic um, semiconductor value chain. And some of that may be because of market forces, um, but it's quite interesting to see that they've really upped their stakes after the crackdown. So... I would expect to see similar developments moving forward with common prosperity, that so long as this is a really serious goal pursued by PRC leadership, um, this will be an area where private players are expected to align, just like in the sort of broader technological self-reliance
1: push. Isabella, what would be your take to that regard on the role of private companies in China's future economic development?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I wanted to add one afterthought to what I just said earlier, um, which is, While there are these long-term visions, they are constantly subject to struggles within the party that are often very obscure to outside observers, where we only kind of get whatever the ultimately emerging consensus is, which then is being published in policy documents and so on. But we understand relatively little about um, the the struggles that that are happening around these big directions behind the scenes. Right. So I just wanted to add this so that it doesn't look like this um, <laughs> one unique, um, big long term game plan that goes back to the 70s and now is like just pre programmed um, in 1978 to happen in 2021. Something like that. Yeah. The, uh, okay.
0: the, the 3D chess master, you know, master exactly. <laughs> is kind of. Uh, Propaganda.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is not what I'm trying to say, just to, just to be sure here. Okay. Um, then I wanted to follow up on one of the points that um, that Jacob was making around the question of whether this is such a fundamental um, shift in path, which goes back to your question of the mixed economy and so on. On the one hand, it is a fundamental shift in, in path. On the other hand, there is a lot of continuity which depends on how we interpret the um, interim period since from Deng Xiaoping to pretty much um, the the recent years, right? Mm -hmm. If we interpret this as a wholesale embrace of free markets and we interpret marketization as basically sooner or later having to amount to westernization, then we interpret what's happening now as a radical, totally unexpected, sudden shift um, in course. Now, if instead we interpret China's market reforms as reforms that involved very deep marketization, but where markets were basically used as a tool in the pursuit of big political goals, then it's in some sense not such a sudden rupture But rather, there is a change in political goals from growth, by all means, to all these notions of high quality growth, um, common prosperity, ecological civilization, um, national rejuvenation, you name it, where then the market is still being used as a tool. This is why I don't think we should expect the end of markets in China or that the strike back of the state means that it there may be a complete crowding out of markets, but rather markets now are being steered in ways that that are aligned with these political goals that have been upgraded from being among others to being some of the most high priority kind of goals. It's not about ending by do, right? Um, I mean, that would be like kind of killing the chicken that is laying the eggs, but rather... It is about steering Baidu's investment strategy, innovation strategy, and so on, to be aligned with national priorities, which does not mean that this is the end of the profit motive or that this is the end of private business. Instead, I mean, there will be an insurance of a continuation of a good economic environment that enables the reaping of pretty big private gains. But these private gains are meant to be achieved in ways that also benefit these larger um, political goals. There is, of course, a power struggle between private large corporations and the entrepreneurs and the party and the state, since companies generally are not particularly keen to have states tell them what their priorities should be, right? If for Baidu it's cheaper to just import these computer chips... Um, then as long as the supply chains are stable, um, (laughs) uh, they would probably prefer to do that. However, in the context of huge instabilities in supply chains, a very unstable global environment and so on, there can also be dynamics that actually um, more or less, quote-unquote, naturally align um, the the, the private businesses with the interests of the state because Baidu also doesn't have a lot of interest of being cut off of its supply chains, right? So as such, I don't think it's correct to interpret this as a the state strikes back and kills the market, but it's rather the state drains into the market to show who is the boss and to make it very clear that there needs to be an alignment of agendas.
1: So the state not trying to destroy the markets, but to show the markets who's the boss. Let's maybe move on to uh, the aspect of foreign companies on the ground in China. And Jacob, you've been working for the EU CCC, the EU EU Chamber of Commerce for a long time. Um, uh, What what do foreign actors need to prepare for um, when looking at this economic shift?
0: I think... You know, the success of a lot of foreign companies in China has always been to some degree to align themselves with these kind of broader strategic goals. Of course, in the past, the broader strategic goal was growth at all costs. So that was quite easy to, uh, to, to secure a good position In the China market and uh, to to grow uh, market share there. But as we start to see this kind of bigger self reliance push and dual circulation strategy and such, there will be a need for foreign companies in China to become increasingly politically aware and, and kind of sophisticated in that regard. So, you know, positioning themselves as complementary to, you know, self reliance and dual circulation and such should be their strategy if their goal is to secure a spot in the market's future. And some companies are already doing that. Uh, You look at BASF and ExxonMobil with their 100% foreign-owned mega projects with sort of top-level technology in Guangdong, you know, which they were able to secure um, in an unprecedented manner. You know, no foreign chemical company ever got more than, uh, you know, a 50-50 joint uh, venture share until they kind of played hardball and said, you want to onshore and secure supply chains for this critical technology. We won't bring it unless you give us full ownership. We don't want to transfer technology to our competitors. And that eventually got them what they wanted. You also see a lot of the automotive, uh, foreign automotive companies are really doubling down on the market. And that is in large part been facilitated because it's aligning with dual circulation strategy, and it, it creates a lot of jobs and tax revenue, and will increase consumption uh, domestically. Um, and it also supports the, the technology ambitions of electric vehicles, which is you know one of the ten industries in the Made in China 2025 plan. But I think it's really important that we also look kind of in the long run how companies should be considering uh, such alignments um, and how it might empower an ideologically driven China and its increasingly ideological and coordinated national champions. It could be really, really good business for the next 10, maybe 15, 20 years to align with those national goals. But how are they going to feel if they ultimately strengthen their competitors and then start having to compete? With these state-backed, coordinated champions in third markets or even at home, and that's that's a strategic question that I hope every headquarters in Europe and North America and Japan are taking into consideration. And then that's also exactly what European governments should be asking. You know, a more ideologically driven China market will and should drive some skepticism towards you know PRC firms acquiring European companies with key technology. And you know, from a broader geopolitical perspective, they should examine the balance of economic gains and stronger European operations in China with the counterbalance of sort of long-term economic and geopolitical competition with the PRC. And and lastly, I would just add that the way that we see a lot of people in in developed liberal market economies talking about um, this this ideological shift and this shift towards self-reliance and sort of indigenous innovation, um, there's a lot of talk about like, oh, well this surely will not succeed. And of course there's a good chance that it won't. But China's the land of the unprecedented, (laughs) Um, and and they've learned the lessons of of, uh, the the different economic models that came before them. So I think rather than spending, as many people have spent the last four decades predicting the imminent collapse of China's economy, um, we would do well to think about what happens if they achieve this broader technological self-reliance? What happens if they achieve this kind of domestic uh, dual circulation vision of a larger domestic market. What happens if they're able to achieve this common prosperity? And how should we plan for that? Not just sit around and hope that it doesn't
2: work. I think it's really brilliant to learn from Jacob, who knows so much about the on the ground details of how businesses have been navigating these challenges. I think two things that stand out from the examples of Baidu and Exxon that I think should be kept in mind in all of this discussion is that, China is still catching up technologically, right? The fact that they agreed to giving in to, I think you said 100% foreign ownership um, to ExxonMobil um, on the condition of getting that kind of technology um, shows that, and that they are so far away from um, having that technology themselves that they gave in to a demand that is not really aligned with the ideas of technological self-sufficiency and so on. Similarly for Baidu, another way of looking at it is that until recently, they were so far away from making their own chips that this wasn't really an option that if Baidu had tried to create its own chips, it would have been technologically so far away from the frontier that it just didn't make sense, right? So I think this is something that we easily forget when we talk about this powerful state and these big state-owned companies and the national champions and all of that, that, that China is still operating in a global business system that is dominated in an overwhelming fashion by very big corporations that are headquartered in the EU and the US and not in China. But we are observing in the Chinese case now is an unprecedented scenario compared to the history since the first industrial revolution in the late 18th century, so that for the first time we have a country that until very recently was clearly one of the least developed countries in the world, having moved up on the technological level to an extent that we even have that kind of conversation. Right, So this is unprecedented historically, and this is part of the enormous tensions and anxieties that we are observing internationally, since this is really also from
1: that global perspective an unprecedented um, constellation. I saw um, an interview in preparation of this podcast that you did, Isabella. At the time, you said that there is an urgent need for better understanding China's political economy. I think that... uh, Whereas in 2020,
2: some people were still talking lightly about the idea of decoupling as if you could um, detach two baggins of a train and decouple in a very neat way. And these two wagons of the train are just the same before and after decoupling. I think in light of what we have experienced in terms of the enormous supply chain difficulties, the notion of a very deep economic integration might have been somewhat abstract before the experiences of um, 2021. And I think right now, it should be absolutely clear to anyone that there is no recovery without getting supply chains back up running now. So in that sense, I think it is in the interest of the recovery of the major economies to have a kind of relationship with China that allows this revival of, of a smoother operation of the global economy, which I think must entail some form of cooperation. So I think I can just reiterate the need to move towards a more objective, solution-oriented approach um, to China, rather than a fear-mongering, anxiety-driven type of panic reaction, which I think we just exacerbate the, the the multiple crises that the world's facing at that point. Jacob,
1: would you like to give uh, us your take?
0: So as far as tangible advice goes, especially for the kind of medium to long term, one of the biggest risks that I see for not having sufficient knowledge and understanding of how things work in China is the sort of collapse of HR exchanges. Um, of European companies in China. The level of localization that is achievable in China because of its excellent kind of talent pool um, and strong education systems and such is great. Uh, And it's great to be able to localize staff and oftentimes to not have to pay these kind of big expat packages and such. But what happens is you end up with, you know, a couple of sort of china's c-suite level people being german or french or dutch or italian and they're there for a couple of years and then they rotate back and it's just kind of part of their career ladder i think really increasing the number of young and mid-level people as well from your your corporate headquarters rotating them in and out of china a few times throughout their career but also bringing more chinese talent from your local operations in china back to headquarters Um, that's, that to me is how you help fix a lot of these misunderstandings um, and, and build those stronger connections so that you really tangibly, not, not only are you getting reports from what's happening on the ground, but you have people who can actually interpret them.
1: Yeah, thank you both for those clear statements on the necessity of being in touch and being on the ground and in the loop on what's um, really happening in China's politics and economy. And there's a lot on our tables also as researchers to follow the developments. Thank you both for your insights and for joining this podcast today. To our listeners out there, stay tuned to our website. There are more podcasts on the topic. We have one online with Barry Norton from UC San Diego, and there is more to come. So stay tuned.
0: You have been listening to Merics Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merics.org.